Copyright the following 23rs from the 2013 IBCD, IBCD Reserve. Summer Institute. More free audios Churches can be found on our website care. at www.ibcd.org. Okay, let's, um, let's go ahead and get started. I actually was sort of whining, praying um, last night and saying, Oh God, please don't make me go in that tent. Oh God, please. <laughs> if you love me, I know you'll make me not go in that tent. Jesus loves me. <laughs> what I want to do with you in the next hour is uh, maybe give you some help on how to use the book of Esther, uh, primarily in your counseling. Um, I, I know from my own counseling, I've been NANC certified since 1989. Um, I know that in my own counseling, I, I rarely have used or had used the book of Esther simply because it was sort of confusing to me. I didn't really know what I was supposed to do with it. And um, so what I want to do is, is give you a way to think about the book of Esther and perhaps then as a key for you to use it when you are counseling people, particularly those in very difficult circumstances. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you superintended the inspiration and inscription of your word so that we would have what we have today. And thank you for the book of Esther. Lord, send your spirit that we might be able to understand it. Please give us illumination in our hearts so that as we read and think about it, we would see why this book is there and that we would be able, as you would open opportunities, to parcel it out to others. And Lord, we do pray that in all of this, our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be glorified and that we would see him, though sometimes, even as he said, he's hidden, we pray that we would be able to find him and help our counselees find him when he seems hidden. So, Lord, please do grant us grace today. And um, please also help everybody out in the tent. <laughs> Encourage them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My father and mother-in-law died in... Uh, the fall winter uh, of last year. My mother-in-law was a woman who from her very young life was completely focused on serving God. She was a marvelous, godly woman. She spent much of her life uh, teaching going to different countries as um, short-term missions trips, uh, into Japan numbers of times, to Peru, to Mexico. When she was in her 50s, which is about the time most people decide they want to start, you know, slowing down a little bit, she went to South Texas to a language school so that she could learn to speak Spanish 
because she wanted to minister into Mexico. Wonderful, godly woman. Godly, hospitable. Raised three sons to serve the Lord. During the last six months or so of her life, she fell into a hideous dementia. And it wasn't just a dementia where she was sort of a happy person and didn't know what was going on. She was a very unhappy person. She was convinced that all of us were lying to her about where she should live. She was very troubled. She was very afraid. There were days during that season where she even became violent. And our daughter, Jessica, who is her first grandchild, and those of you who have first grandchildren, you know the place that grandchildren hold. First grandchildren, child, first female, Fitzpatrick. Um, she, even, she even called her a liar and was screaming at her. That's what happened to her. I'm going to be honest with you. During those six months of, and it was at least six months, of her terrifying dementia, I did not understand what was going on. And God was hidden. What he was doing was hidden from our family. Now, you may be expecting me to then come to you and say, but everything worked out, and it was wonderful, and we all got, you know, we all figured it all out. We didn't. The Lord took her. We were thanking him for taking her. And I know that her mind now is not only as good as it was then, but as it should have been. It's but you see, we all, all of us, whether we have great faith, small faith, faith like a mustard seed, or even on the days when you say, I'm not sure I have any at all, and my daughter and I would talk on the phone, and I would say, I, she'd say, what's going on? What is, what is God doing? I mean, she spent her whole life serving God. Really? Seriously, is this what we get? See, I'm being very honest with you here. Because I want to say to you that what we want to do is make our Christianity tidy. We want to make it all like a fairy tale. Maybe there's a little bit of a bad part in there, but at the end, they all live happily ever after. Now, I'm not saying to you that I am concerned at all about my mother-in-law's eternal soul. I know now she's living happily ever after. But I didn't see it. I still don't see what was going on. Okay, are you all right with that? I'm saying all that to you because you're going to have counselees who are going to come to you and they're going to be in the middle of a horrific situation. And the, and the more you counsel, the more horrific situations you will hear. It's going to be very much of a temptation for you to say, 
well, I'm just going to figure all this out for you. I'm going to figure it all out. And, well, you know, let's just see what God's trying to teach you. And then I'm going to tell you what God's trying to teach you, and then that way we will have figured it all out. See, let's, let's just say his ways are not our ways, and I don't understand. There are plenty of things I don't understand. Can we be okay with that? See, Christianity is not meant to be tidy. It's messy because life is messy. And God does things that, um, that we frequently don't understand. I'm going to talk to you now out of the book of Esther, and I, want to, I wanted to tell you that story. I wanted to set that up for you because what we want to do is take the book of Esther and make it tidy. I was recently at a homeschool convention where um, my daughter Jessica and I were speaking. And one of the sessions was about how to raise your daughter to be an Esther and your son to be a Daniel. And, you know, the way that you do that, the speaker said, was by feeding them vegetables. See, what is the book of Esther doing there? Is the book of Esther there primarily so that women will have a role model? Esther is not our role model. But, you know, of course, as a woman, we're always looking for a role model, and, you know, there aren't tons of them. So, you know, there's a book that's actually even named after her, so let's use that. Um, Esther is not our role model. All right, so here's the question. Do you ever use the book of Esther in your counseling? Uh, it's hard to do if you're confused about the point of the book. Should we tell female counselees that they should be like Esther? Please don't say yes. Should we tell male counselees they should be like Mordecai? See, Esther is not given to us as a morality tale. Do you know what I mean? It's not put there so that you can model your life after Esther or Mordecai. It's put there for a different reason. Or is the book of Esther just going to be one of those books we don't use much in counseling? Now, how many of you do counseling on a fairly regular basis, either peer counseling or in your church, whatever. Yes, okay, bunches of you. How many of you usually use the book of Esther? Right. See, because we don't know what to do with it. So why is it there? And does it just not work in counseling? And if it doesn't fly in the counseling room where the rubber actually meets the road, then why is it there at all? Well, Jesus tells us how to interpret Old the Old Testament. Jesus is the infallible interpreter of the Old Testament scriptures. This is what Jesus said. Oh, foolish ones, this is after the resurrection. 
O foolish ones and so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, speaking of the crucifixion and then his resurrection, and enter into his glory? And listen to this. Now he's teaching them the appropriate hermeneutic to use with all the scriptures. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Further, he said to them, and this is a little bit later on in the story, he's now talking with his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, when Jesus says the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, what he's talking about is the entire Old Testament. Everything written about me in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. And he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. You see, we need to have a different hermeneutic. We need to take what Jesus said about the Old Testament and then begin to interpret the Old Testament in light of what he said, which is that it's all about him. Here's Jesus, and he's talking to the religious leaders. He said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. See, the Old Testament and the book of Esther is about Jesus. What? The Old Testament, including the book of Esther, is about the Christ. So where do we see the gospel, the Christ, the church, God's kingdom, the sovereign God, and the king in this book? Where, where do we see him in this book? How can it help us today? Is it a morality tale, a place where we learn how to be like good, good people, See, the book of Esther is not about how women can become the courtesan of, of evil kings and so be like her. I mean, seriously. Let's not buy little Esther dolls and give them to our children. It's not a book about how to be like good people and don't be like Haman because you might get, end up getting hung on the gallows. Or, <laughs> um, you know, I used to with my, with my children who, praise God, he, um, he protected them from all of my dreadful parenting. Um, <laughs> we used to sing, I don't want to be a Jonah and get swallowed by a whale. See, because that's the point of that book. I don't want to be a Jonah and get swallowed by a whale. So to Nineveh I will go, for the Lord has told me so. And I'll tell the people you must be born again. What? <laughs> See, but that's what we do, isn't it? We take these stories and we tell particularly our children, but also our counselees, be like these people. It's not the point. Jesus is the point of the book of Esther. 
So what do we learn from it? It's a very strange book. A very strange book. Indeed, it doesn't even mention the name of God. The name of God is not even mentioned in the entire book. No place. It's very strange, isn't it? And perhaps that's the point. You see, the point is that even where his name is not mentioned, he is still at work. Now, I know that there are undoubtedly many of you today who are saddened and burdened by what the Supreme Court has recently done. I'm going to say it again. Whether or not we end up living in a country where his name is not mentioned, do not think he's not at work. Okay? No matter what the Supreme Court does. Because they may be the Supreme Court, but he's the Supreme King. And he will do all of his will, whether through wickedness or faithfulness. He's going to accomplish his will. So let us not despair. And I'll tell you what, it may get very messy. I will be surprised if it doesn't. However, God's ruling. So how does Mordecai and his cousin Esther end up in Susa? Well, you know the story. Mordecai and his cousin Esther are in Susa because the children of Israel have been taken away in captivity as punishment for their idolatry. That's why they are living there. But it's interesting because there was a group of people who were allowed to go back to Israel to replant in the land. But they, a certain group of them went. Mordecai didn't go. He didn't take Esther with him and go. Now, perhaps he was too young or we don't know. But why didn't he go? Why is he still in Susa? Maybe he's comfortable there. Now, here's the opening story. This is the opening story from the book of Esther. And I want you to hear it, maybe with new ears. Listen, listen to this and think, I am meant to scoff at the world's power brokers. Because we can, we can look at what the executive branch of our government or the Supreme Court is doing. We can look at all of these things that are happening in our country and we can think they've got all the power. See, that's what this sounds like. They have all the power. They don't. See, and God can turn the whole thing by having one guy be unable to sleep one night. Just, boom, turns it. Why? Because that's his will to do so. This is what chapter 1 of Esther says. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the Citadel, you're supposed to be beginning to laugh. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, 
and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now that is a party. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days. In the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and, made, and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of pofri, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. You're, you, you're meant to be snickering. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the drinking was according to this edict, you don't have to get drunk. There was no compulsion. He wasn't forcing them to drink. He could have forced them to drink, but he wasn't forcing them to drink because he was in a good mood. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. See, that's, that's kind of, I mean, seriously, that's, that's kind of an overwhelming description of worldly power. And you're meant to look at that as a believer and say, well, you know, that's how it might look on the outside, but there's a hidden God working. And the whole point of the story is there's a hidden God working in the midst of all of this ridiculousness. The hidden God begins to work in the life of Vashti. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine... He commanded all of these guys, the seven eunuchs who served in the, prince, in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. I tell you, I have heard Bible studies that have said, be like Esther, don't be like Vashti. No. No and no. No. For she was lovely to look at. See, she wasn't submissive, so God punished her. No, I no. <clears throat> but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now, this is pretty interesting, because here's a guy who com can command all of these leaders how much to drink, and his wife doesn't obey him. See, that's what you're meant to do, that little chuckle right there. That's what you're meant to do. It's like, oh, yeah, you think you're all that in a bag of chips. Uh, not really. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, <laughs> for this was the procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him to bring all these people, the prin seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat in, first in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, since she has not performed the command of the king. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only, 
This is so funny. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done this thing, but against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. So why should I obey you? This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who will have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Yes, <laughs> there will. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. This is so absolutely ridiculous. I mean, seriously, really? If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is, is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands. And all the women in the crowd went, <laughs> you know, the silliness of this, seriously, that he's going to make a command that all the women in the whole kingdom honor their husbands. He's going to do that. Why? Well, because he has a wife that doesn't honor him. Pretty good. This advice pleased the king. Well, of course it does. He'd been drinking. <clears throat> so he sent letters to all the provinces. Listen, do you think that all the provinces from India to Ethiopia would have heard that Vashti didn't come in? No, but he's got to go and talk about it. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan had proposed, and he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. How's that working? See, we're meant to scoff at the world's power brokers especially tin-pot puny braggarts like Ahasuerus and Haman. That's what we're meant to do here. This isn't meant to awe us. You see, because we see what's going on behind the scenes. We see that there is a God who is, who is working. Now, here's some questions for us to consider. Why did Mordecai decide to obey, disobey Haman's edict? And you know Haman's edict, what Haman's edict was, because Haman was second in command to Mordecai. So, excuse me, to Ahasuerus. And so Haman, part of what he wanted, the perks he wanted for his job, was that when he went out, everyone was supposed to bow before him. Everybody in this kingdom is just like glory hogs. So everybody's supposed to bow before him. Mordecai decides not to. Now, we don't know why in this instance Mordecai decides to, to not do it. Mordecai had obviously compromised in other areas. Why is, he, why is he saying no to this? We don't know. Maybe it was because Haman uh, was an Agagite, and the Agagites are um, 
ancient enemies of Israel. We don't know why, but we do know that he refused. He refused to obey that command, which, of course, when in, when, whenever you're around anybody who's a glory hog, if you don't give them glory, it makes them angry. And so Haman became angry. Why did Mordecai balk at this one? And why did Mordecai counsel Esther to obey the king's edict? See, you know what the king's edict was. His wonderful counselors told him that since Vashti was um, to be done away with, put into the harem and never to be seen again, what Mordecai should, excuse me, Ahasuerus should do then is send out people to gather from all of his provinces, 127 provinces, beautiful virgins. I want you to, you know, we hear this story and it's like, oh, Ahasuerus and Esther, aren't they nice? No. This is hideous. This is terrible. Young girls from Ethiopia to India, 127 provinces, are snatched from their homes by the king's servants and then brought back to Susa to be in a spa for over a year so that they could have a one-night stand with this drunkard king. I mean, get a clue. This is not a good thing. We don't want our daughters to be like Esther. This is not a love story. This is not a love story. But you know, we want to make everything a nice, tidy little love story. This is not a love story. This is the story of ungodly authority taking ungodly advantage of his position of absolute power. He could do anything he wanted. And yet Mordecai let his cousin go into the king's harem to prepare for cruel abuse. Why? I don't know why, but he advised her. He let her go in. This king chooses the most beautiful virgins, probably girls who were 14, 13, 14, 15 years old, beautiful young girls, to go in and have one night stand with this man who longed, lusted, after young virgins. The king, this king chooses the most beautiful virgins in his empire to force into his harem so that he would be amused at the loss of Vashti. See, that's what's going on here. Why did Mordecai tell her to do that? And why did she do it? I mean, there are some things that are worse than death. So what can we learn? How does this story help us? How does this story help our counselees? All right, number one, God uses severely flawed people to accomplish his will. Now, to that, we can all say thank you. See, God uses severely flawed people. Mordecai, Esther, Haman, Ahasuerus. 
he uses these severely flawed people, sinful people, to accomplish his will. Neither Esther nor Mordecai are role models. We're not to look at this story and say, be like them. Yes, they were both faithful, but they were also terribly flawed. And yet, and yet, God uses them for his purposes. And that's the point I want you to see here. It seems like God is hidden. It seems like he's not at work. His, his name isn't even being mentioned. But Mordecai and Haman and Esther and Ahasuerus are all part of God's grand plan to write this narrative so that we would know that even when we don't see his hand, he still works. God doesn't need our perfect obedience to accomplish his will. Now, just in case that made anybody nervous, I am not saying to you, oh, goody, so let's all go disobey. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. I am saying God doesn't need our perfect obedience to accomplish his, his will. In fact, he seems to use, love to use the weak, doesn't he? The flawed, the weak. I mean, look at the, for crying out loud, look at the life of Peter. Seriously? And you think, well, Peter got better. Well, he was a little bit better. And then, you know, we have that whole Galatia thing. He eventually dies a martyr's, martyr's death. God does give him grace to do that. But, you see, God doesn't need perfect people to accomplish his will. And he doesn't need his name emblazoned across the sky or a marquee. He works to accomplish his will, whether we see it or not. Listen to the kinds of people God uses. For your, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It's kind of interesting. It sort of flies in the face of American Christianity. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Listen to that. God chooses what is weak in the world. Who's weakest in the world? The weakest in the world was that bloody man hanging on a cross. He's the weakest. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So here's Ahasuerus in the story of his big party. And God, sorry, I fully believe in God's sovereignty over everything, places it into the heart of Vashti. Resist. He just lets her resist. And she does. And God works his story. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing that the things that are, so that for one reason. What is the point of what God is doing 
in tearing everything we think, tearing everything apart and not being what we think he should be. And we pray, God, give us a righteous nation. God, work in the executive branch. God, work in the judiciary. God, work in our government. And then he doesn't, we think. What's the point? Because at the end of the age, he will be glorified for having done all his will and no human being will boast in his presence. See that? That right there, that's the truth. That's the truth. That no human being may boast in his presence. God gives liberties to evil dictators for his own purposes. What's going on in this story? What's going on in our country? What's going on in any of a number of countries where people are being martyred today? God gives liberties to evil dictators for his own purposes. We do not know what those purposes are. Why did my mother-in-law suffer as she did? I don't know. But he has purposes and he's working them out. Daniel, who also understood living underneath an ungodly authority, said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He changes times and seasons. He does. He changes times and seasons. See, we think if we elect somebody that sort of goes along with what we like, we think we've done something. God changes times and seasons according to his own will. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Who does? Who removes kings and sets up kings? Who put the president that we have into the place of being the president? Who put the judiciary in as it is right now? Choke a little bit on that, right? God, he's hidden, isn't he? He feels very hidden right now. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He is that deep and hidden thing. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. See, God is working his plan and Brothers and sisters, and to all of our counselees, that's good news. I don't have to see the right ruler or the right circumstances to know that, in fact, God is working. God is working whether I see him or his name is mentioned or not. Now, is it better if his name is mentioned? Yes, of course. And should we vote? And should we try to work for liberties, religious liberties? Yes, of course. But sometimes there's nothing we can do. And on those days, we say, you're God. And you are ruling sovereignly. God allowed the pagan nations to continue to grow more wicked to fulfill their purpose. That's it. Shocking verse. Listen to this. They shall come back here in the fourth generation. In other words, the Amorites are going to be destroyed. But it wasn't quite time for that yet. So I'm going to let them go on and be more and more wicked. See, we want everything tidy, don't we? It's like, come on. Really, Lord, really? 
So come on, just, just make things all nice for us now. God appointed, God appointed, God, I'm, excuse me, God appointed Pontius Pilate, weasel, respectfully. God appointed Pontius Pilate, Herod, Caesar, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin to accomplish the salvation of our souls. See, if there were not wicked if there were not wicked rulers at that moment in Israel, in Rome, that plan that God had would not have worked that way. So God sets those people up according to his plan. See, our problem is, I want to know the plan. Right? So I'm all good with it if you tell me the plan. You know, Lord, just show me what you're doing. That's like God sits in his heaven and laughs. Really? I should show you what I'm doing? And I mean, sometimes God does show us what he's doing. And other times we have no wisdom in it at all. And that's okay. Because, see, he's got it. Acts 4. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? See, people's plotting in vain. That's Esther. People's plotting in vain. That's the crucifixion. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together, you know, doing what they always do, against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. What? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, don't tell me that God isn't sovereign over sin. Now, I'm going to jump into the deep end of the pool and I'll jump right back out again. Okay? We are responsible for our sin. The Bible teaches that we are responsible for our sin. The Bible also teaches that God is sovereign even over sin. That's called concurrence. How that works, that I freely choose to sin and yet God is responsible over it, I don't know. And that's okay. Right? Because, like, he's God and I'm not, although sometimes I think I am. He's God and I'm not. So he can rule sovereignly over sin and I can freely choose to sin and be responsible for my sin, and yet he's going to use it for his purposes. Now, I am not saying, okay, go sin. All right? We don't make God responsible for our sin. James teaches us God is not responsible for our sin. However, this verse teaches us he's sovereign over sin. Okay? So we look at what goes on in our country, in our nation, and we say, Wait, there's so much sin. <sighs> to which we then say, God's ruling sovereignly even over that sin. Okay? Now, am I telling you so in that case, go sin, it doesn't matter? Okay, thank you. See the edifice God is able to build on our sin. See, he uses even our sin for his glory.
That's kind of outside the box, isn't it? I'm not telling you to sin, but I'm saying that he uses even our sin for his glory. How many times have you read, how many times have you read the story of Peter denying Christ and said, thank you? Thank you. The people around you were not perfect. Therefore, there's a place for me. Thank you. Every time the Roman lash was laid on the Savior's back, it was for us and according to God's plan. And yet those Roman soldiers who were punishing him, that that gentle man, that glorious man whose back was ripped open for us, they are responsible for their sin. And yet God tells us it was He was behind it. He was, Jesus was, smitten by God. Smitten by God. God is in charge of those in authority in our counselee's life. See, that's good news, isn't it? You know, do you you have to work someplace where you've got this, you know, really not wonderful employer who uh, is cheating you? And this isn't to say if your employer's cheating you, then just don't do anything about it. Of course, you talk about it. But God's sovereign. Godly authority, of course, is better than ungodly authority. But God can and does use both. Do we see that? Can we tell our counselees that? God can and does youth use both faithfulness and sin to accomplish his will. We should try to make things better. We should vote. Paul says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Do you see? If you can do something that's lawful to change things, like vote or run for political office or confront a Uh, an employer who's cheating or something like you, do it, go ahead and do it. If it's lawful for you to do it, you may do it. Try to make things better. Don't just give up and say, oh, well, God's sovereign. We're not, that's not, we're not fatalists. That's not what I'm talking about. So we try to make things better. But quite frankly, there's not a lot we can do about a Hasuerus or the Supreme Court. We are to pray that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, and we should be praying that all the time. God, protect us and help us that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life. But this, 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 This country, our family, our church was never meant to be God's political kingdom on earth. And we get confused. And I'm trying to speak carefully here. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't run for office. But uh, excuse me, America is not the kingdom of God. In case you hadn't noticed. Jesus has another kingdom altogether. 
And you know what? It works just completely upside down from the way we think it should. And we all want to have all the, all the power of a Hasuerus. Oh, yeah, if I was powerful like a Hasuerus, then things would be great. No, it wouldn't, because then you would be involved. <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> See, that's good news. God has a plan that stretches far beyond our temporal understanding. That's what you can tell your counselees. A woman comes to you who has a terrible and dreadful husband. Again, I'm not saying be a fatalist. Oh, well, do everything you can to change the circumstance. But if you are unable to change it, then you say God has a plan that stretches far beyond our temporal understanding. Far beyond it. There is a kingdom that's taking over all the other kingdoms of the world. Uh, about a year ago, I was in church, and uh, I go to Valley Center Community Church, and our pastor was preaching through the book of Daniel, and he was talking about that stone that's cut out of a mountain without hands, and I don't remember what had happened. I think it was probably about the time of the election, and, um, and I was thinking, perhaps what I'm seeing here and what looks like the disintegration of everything I'm hoping for in my nation is actually that stone that was cut out of the mountain, Jesus, that stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, perhaps it's him crushing this kingdom. See, we never think that it's our kingdom that's going to get crushed. But that stone will crush all other kingdoms. It shall break, that stone shall break in pieces all these kingdoms. See, if what we see in the disintegration and downfall of our nation, if what we see is that stone coming into our nation and establishing his kingdom, then why would we resist it? See, again, I'm, saying, I'm not saying don't vote, all right? I'm saying, you know, you get to the place and there's nothing left you can do. And so you pray that you can lead a godly life and a peaceful life, and then you say it's all yours. Crush it if you need to. Now, see, that breaks my heart because I love this nation. But there's a kingdom. This isn't the kingdom. There's another kingdom. And that kingdom is going to take over this kingdom. And perhaps the downfall of this kingdom is what needs to happen for that kingdom. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to and, and, and. It shall stand forever. That's not America. It shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. Speaking, of course, of the incarnation. God is building his kingdom, not ours. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I should read that sentence to myself every day. Really? God is building his kingdom, not ours. And in the morning when you pray, my father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. It should mean something. Your kingdom come, not mine. Whatever that means. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will be done. Oh yeah, but what if that means that 
we legalize homosexual marriage. Your will be done. Okay, now don't flip out. See, we are responsible for our sin, but God is sovereign over it. Okay? We are to seek first the kingdom of God, not our own kingdom, and his righteousness, not our own righteousness. That's what we're to seek first. God's son doesn't shout his name in the streets. So different than the way we do things. He doesn't even need to be mentioned to accomplish his will. Because you know how the story goes now, right? Story goes, Haman gets angry at Mordecai because Mordecai won't bow. So Haman decides that he's going to build gallows upon which he will hang Mordecai. And he has Ahasuerus, that person, who thinks that, you know, he has all, all the power and knows everything that's going on. He's going to have Ahasuerus make a rule that all of the Jews need to die. See, don't ever underestimate the power of your glory hogging. New Testament tells us that it was for envy. It was out of envy that the rulers turned Christ over to be crucified. Don't. Don't ever underestimate that and the power of what you might do if you think somebody's not giving you your proper respect. And so, of course, you know what happens and how God turns the whole thing on one night when Ahasuerus, who has who knows how many concubines and virgins and people in his harem that he could come and have comfort him, one night he can't sleep. We see, why can't he sleep and why doesn't he call for a woman? Because God's at work. So he can't sleep. And so he's laying there. God, where's I could go to sleep? You know, see, here's this great dictator who has insomnia. <laughs> yeah, great dictator with insomnia. And so he calls and has the... Records read, because if anything's going to put him to sleep, it's going to be listening to somebody read history to him. <laughs> and as he's listening, he hears that Mordecai has done something wonderful and has never been honored for it. And the whole thing turns right then. I mean, you know the story. I don't have to tell. But I mean, think about it. Here's this guy who has so much power, can't get to sleep. The human condition. The hiddenness of the gospel and Jesus' parables of the kingdom. You see, Jesus himself talks about how hidden the power of the gospel is. It's hidden in, in leaven in the dough, in a teeny mustard seed, in seed sown on a path, in hidden treasure, in a priceless pearl. See, see the, the goodness, the, the power of the kingdom is not in Washington, D.C. or Sacramento. It is hidden, and yet it grows in imperceptible ways and tears down kingdoms and moves into kingdoms and fills the entire face of the world with fruit. That's what the kingdom does. 
He doesn't even need to be mentioned to accomplish his will. Contrast that with that description of Ahasuerus. Listen, listen to Ahasuerus and what Jesus says about himself. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out loud or throw big parties and tell everybody how much to get drunk. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed he will not break. See, that, does, that flies right in the face of all of our desire for authority and power, right? A bruised reed he will not be- break. A smoldering wick he will not quench, quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So, bringing all this to an end, and you know, of course, what happens. What happens, of course, is Haman ends up hanging on his own gallows, which is, you know, you're meant to laugh again. It's like, he, you know, he ends up hanging on his own gallows, and it ends up being the Feast of Purim, where all of the Israels then are able to, Israelites are able to go out and plunder all their neighbors. And God sits in his heaven and laughs. See, and doesn't quite work the way we think it should, does it? And so, we don't need to worry and scheme. We can seek to be faithful and trust and know that even when we fail, he never does. Oh, isn't that good news? I mean, seriously, isn't that good news? I'm so glad. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I'll tell you what, if it depends on me, I'm toast. It better not depend on me. We can seek to be faithful and trust and know that even when we fail, he never does. We may use any lawful means to make our lives and the lives of those around us better. Yeah, so go get a job if you need one. And vote and seek to confront evil. Do those things, yes and amen. But then when there's nothing left for you to do, you bow. And we can know that even if we're in a context where his name isn't mentioned and where wicked, wickedness rules, he's still going to rule and overrule. See, is, that's great news. Isn't that wonderful news? See, because otherwise I despair. We have a righteous, loving king. See, here's the contrast. We have a righteous, loving king who is presently gathering a virgin bride for himself. You know who that is? Us. And sorry, guys, that's you too. See, in this relationship, you're the feminine part. Jesus is the masculine part. He's so masculine that he makes everything else feminine. Sorry, I don't mean to attack you in any way. We have a righteous, loving king who is presently gathering a virgin bride for himself from all the peoples and nations of the world, from China, from Russia, from Iran, from Afghanistan, from Venezuela, from the United States, from Canada, from Western Europe. He is gathering a bride to himself. I don't care what's going on in the government. Jesus is gathering a bride. And she will be his queen. She's not the most beautiful woman around. (laughs) 
But he will cleanse her and beautify her and present her to himself in splendor. And his love will make her radiant and she'll live in his pardon, protection, and provision forever. So you say to your counselees, to your own heart, help me believe. Help me believe that even though what I think I'm seeing is everything falling apart. Everything falling apart. Thank you. That that's, even though that's what I see with my eyes, I'm going to walk by faith and not by sight. And faith tells me that there is a hidden God who is working all things according to the counsel of his will and at the end of the story, maybe not here, probably not here, at the end of the story in eternity, you know, I'm not going to go to God and ask him anything. I mean, seriously. <sighs> I'm going to fall on my face before the risen Christ who's done everything and called me to himself. Pray with me now. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we can rely on you even though there are times when we think you're not at work. Oh God, forgive our unbelief. And help us to know that you will care for us no matter what that looks like and help us to be faithful to pray and to work as we, as we can and help us to see you, Lord Jesus, in everything. Bless our time together now during lunch. Help us to be men and women of faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2013, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org.